Hi, I'm Josh Spinner, and welcome to this issue of Today's Faith Matters. In this episode, I continue my conversation with Tony Arsenal, where we talk about Wayne Grudem's updated systematic theology, and most specifically, Grudem's handling of a doctrine known as eternal functional subordination, which is absent in the first edition, but in the second edition, Grudem elaborates on this idea that Jesus has eternally been subordinate to the Father. And for both Tony and I, we see this view as incredibly problematic, most importantly, because it's unbiblical, because of the theological problems that it leads to, to the gospel problems that it leads to, and it goes against the history of what the church has taught regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. So this is absolutely no small matter. This is a hugely significant and consequential doctrine. I was reading an article this morning talking about the 2020 State of the Church survey that gets done every other year uh, among professing evangelical Christians. And 65% of the people surveyed agreed with the statement regarding Jesus as being the greatest created being. And it's just so disappointing that within American Christendom, there is this widespread biblical illiteracy and lack of understanding of the Trinity, which the Trinity is the heart of the Christian faith, what we believe, the gospel itself. And so again, getting the Trinity wrong and getting doctrines about Jesus wrong have really significant impact to our faith and what we believe as Christians. So this is the second part of our conversation. Tony and I pick up this second part where we left off last week talking about the way Grudem uses different sources in his systematic theology. And from there, we continue to, to talk about the, the debate that's been uh, raging regarding this doctrine. And so again, I think it's a really important discussion and I'm so appreciative of Tony and his, uh, his knowledge on this subject. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. So again, that's very helpful. Um, I think you said Bobbing's quotes, who was one where you felt like Grudem took that out of context. Yeah. Yeah. So in order to understand this issue, and this, this is another thing that demonstrates the lack of consistency. And when I see an author who is not able to consistently apply their own argument to themselves, it, it, you know, when, when they make an argument against a point and then that argument actually comes back against them, um, that shows me that it's not a, a particularly well thought out um, argument. And so in order to understand this, you have to understand a little bit about Glenn Butner's argument against Grudem. What, what Glenn Butner does is he takes the theology um, of sort of the, the sixth ecumenical council. So um, there, there's the four main councils that we, we are universally accepted. The fifth and sixth council are a little bit less universally accepted. And then the seventh council is more or less rejected by, by most Protestants. At the sixth ecumenical council, the question at hand was more or less, is there one will in the person of the son or are there two wills in the person of the son? And the, the teaching ministry of the church in, you know, embodied in the council came to the conclusion that there must be two wills in the Trinity because uh, will is a property of nature or two wills in, in the incarnation, excuse me, because will is a property of nature and there are two natures in the, in, um, the incarnation. So what, what Glenn does, uh, what Dr. Butner does, is he takes that logic that the, the will is a property of nature. He then applies that logic to the Trinity consistently and says, well, if will is a property of nature and there's only one will in the Trinity or one nature in the Trinity, therefore there's only one will in the Trinity. And so in response to that, because that's a pretty devastating uh, argument uh, against Grudem, and if Grudem had simply needed to clarify and explain how his theology doesn't require plurality of wills, then this is actually an argument that doesn't require response. But he does respond to it, which tells you he sees the force of it. He says, however, Butner's reasoning is fatally flawed, for it takes the analysis that churches in the seventh century made regarding one topic, the God-man Jesus Christ, and improperly applies it, some of its categories, to another topic, the Trinity. So he's saying that Dr. Butner's argument doesn't work because they're not talking about the Trinity. They're talking about the incarnation. And there's no good reason to apply that logic to the Trinity. Well, what's interesting about the Herman Bobbing quote, here's what he says, and this is on page 496 of Grudem's. He quotes Bobbing says, for as mediator, the son is subordinate to the father. 
calls him God, dot, 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 is his servant, dot, 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 who receives a reward, dot, 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 for the obedience accomplished, dot, dot, dot. Those are all legitimate uses. It's, he's eliminating scripture passages that um, Bob Inc. cites. Still, this relation between the father and son, though most clearly manifest during Christ's sojourn on earth, was not first initiated at the time of the incarnation. For the incarnation itself is already included in the execution of the work assigned to the son, but occurs in eternity, therefore also existed already during the time of the Old Testament. Now, a few things about that. One thing that we have to understand is that uh, authors we should assume authors are speaking consistently unless we can demonstrate they're not. So it's not the case that we should assume Bob Inc. is contradicting himself here or that he's contradicting stuff he's wrote elsewhere. However, Grudem's principle was that the logic that a group or an author uses in the incarnation cannot properly be applied to the logic of the Trinity. Well, the citation for this is Herman Bob Inc. Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, Sin and Salvation in Christ. This quote comes out of Bavink's section on Christology. So if Grudem is, is uniformly exercising his principle that he uses to refute Butner's argument, then he can't use this quote. Sorry about hopping off the mic there for a second. Here's what Bavink actually has to say in his Trinity section about this subject. Um, let's see here. He says, it appeared first of all in the form of subordinationism. According to this view, the son is indeed eternal begotten from the essence of the father, not a creature and not brought into being out of nothing yet inferior and subordinate to the father. The father alone is God. He alone is the fountain of deity. The son is God having received his nature from the father by communication. This is the teaching of Justin Tertullian, Clement Origen and others, right? Well, I, I don't have time on right now to go there, but that's almost the exact same definition that Grudem gives when he talks about his own view on eternal generation. He, he says there are two different options for eternal generation. The first is that the son is equal to God because he, is, he has been communicated to him the same nature as the father. That's a view that's existed within the, the Christian church. It's actually the majority report in the Christian church. But then he says there's a second view, which is Calvin's view, that the son is, does not have his nature communicated to him. And that view he rejects. He doesn't reject it strongly, but he says he doesn't think that that's the best way to account for it. The problem is that when Bavink is actually talking about the eternal relations in the Trinity, he identifies exactly what Grudem is saying about the eternal relations in the Trinity and calls that subordinationism and says that that is an inappropriate view. So what Grudem has done is he's taking one quote out of the Christology section. He's, he's applied it to the Trinity, which he already says he can't do. He already says that that's not appropriate. And then now he has ignored what Bob Inc. actually says about the Trinity, which is basically saying this view that you've described as your own, that's subordinationism. So again, it just demonstrates that he's taking these quotes out of context. He's not respecting or even observing, I think, the proper uh, context of them, either in the immediate context, we saw that with the Hodge quote, or in the context of an author's broader writing, which is what we see with the, the uh, Bobbing quote. And, you know, this, this is a demonstrated pattern now. It's no longer just like a little, a little snafu here or a little bugaboo there. These are two significantly long quotes that have been misused. And so the, the last quote I want to look at, because, you know, Who's to say what Bobbing meant, right? Who's to say what Hodge meant? We, we can't ask Bobbing, we can't ask Hodge, we can't get clarification. However, Grudem starts to cite modern living theologians. Yeah. And, and the last one in his quote, I, I actually like dropped my tablet on the floor in disbelief when I saw that he was quoting this. He says, furthermore, biblical revelations, this is a quote, identified each of these persons as thinking, willing, and active agent. Nothing exhibits this fact more than the covenant of redemption, pactum salutis, made between the divine persons in eternity, dot, dot, dot. Although these three persons are mutually active in every, every external work of the Godhead, they are active differently. And he quotes Michael Horton. Now, Michael Horton has been public about the fact that he does not hold Grudem's view. He says explicitly in episode 22 of Core Christianity, which was a podcast he had for a while, that there is no functional subordination of the son. And in episode 412 of that same show, he says that if you believe 
these, this theology, if you really truly believe this, right, this goes back to that, that faith content, that the factual content of the faith, if the factual content of the faith is that the son is eternally subordinate to the son of that, he says, you are not saved. So he's, he's demonstrated to take historical quotes out of context. He's demonstrated to not apply his own principles consistently across the board. He's now demonstrated to have quoted a living theologian who explicitly has said he disagrees with him as though he agrees with them. I'm not sure how much more needs to be demonstrated, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I try to be charitable. I try to be fair. I, I understand how hard it is to write uh, consistently and, and to do this stuff. Um, you know, uh, there, there are times where I'm writing like a blog article that's like 800 words. And I realize that I said something at the top that doesn't really line up with what I said at the bottom and I have to go back and scrap it. So I get it. I understand it. But these things are not new critiques. When, when these, this is a list of quotes that he started when he had this long article that was just a list of quotes. People did this work with the quotes two years ago. They demonstrated to him you're not using Hodge correctly. You're not using Bobbing correctly. Um, we won't go into the, the Burkhoff quote, but he he quotes a section of Burkhoff and it jumps over a bullet point where the topic completely changes and it changes the meaning of the text to not have that division with a heading in it. So he does that. And now he's quoting a living theologian that he very easily could have said, hey, hey, Mike, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about using your quote in here. And I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. He could have picked up the phone. He could have sent an email. There's any number of ways he could have tweeted at Mike Horton, right? There's, there's any number of ways he could have gotten a hold of Mike Horton. And the only thing that I can come up with is he just didn't care. He, he either didn't care or he didn't understand that these were not appropriate uses. And so I, what I want people to take away from this I don't hate Wayne Grudem. I don't think Wayne Grudem is some particularly evil sinner. Like I said, he's not some cartoon villain twisting his mustache, but we have to assess a person fairly. We have to look at what they say, especially when they're talking about matters that are so important like the Trinity. And when they're teaching others, right? This theology worked its way into the pulpit. It worked its way into, uh, into, the, the everyday person reading the ESV study Bible. There are people who had no idea and have no idea that this is not the theology that the church has always taught. This is not what the, the Orthodox faith has always been. Instead, they see a, a note in their ESV study Bible, or they see a particular translation choice in 1 Corinthians that seems to say that the son is subordinate to the father. And all of a sudden now, he's leading people to believe something that if consistently believed leads to damnation. And that's a hard pill to swallow. I understand the gravity of saying that, but it's important because this is people's lives and salvations on the line. It's not, it's not a joking matter. And so I, I don't want people to think, oh yeah, Tony's just beating up on Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a big boy. If you think I'm beating up on him, send him an email, tell him to go to my website. My email's there. I'm happy to set up a conversation with him directly. I've tried that in the past. I've tried to set up conversations with him. I've tried to set up conversations with Bruce, Bruce Ware. Neither one of them will return my emails. That's fine. I'm just some dude in New Hampshire. I don't have a, I don't have a publishing arm. I don't, you know, I don't teach at a seminary. I get it. Like I'm just some guy, but we are allowed to, and not only are we allowed to, we are required by biblical command to hold people who teach false things accountable to that. And this is not some off the cuff blog post. This is not some off the cuff comment made in a question and answer session at a conference 10 years ago. This is a major publication. This, this may be, systematic theology is probably hands down Bruce, uh, uh, Wayne Grudem's most influential work that he'll ever write. Might not be his like magnum opus. He might've written other things that he would consider his like chief work, but this is by far his most influential work. Maybe, maybe his translation work on the ESV uh, and the, the, the study Bible, maybe that might be more influential. This, this is not something that we should overlook because, yeah, well, you know, maybe it just wasn't clear. Yeah, I definitely think that that's an important distinction. And um, I said this before we had pressed record, but, you know, a lot of these pseudo-Christian movements like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, one of the things they have in common is that their theology of the Trinity is wrong. Right. This right. is not a purely academic discipline that a wrong theology of the Trinity impacts 
everything. It impacts right. your entire theology of how you understand the Bible and every other major doctrine. Uh, so that's why it's it's so serious and why in the earliest councils, so much of their language is ultimately revolving around Trinitarian and Christological matters. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, an analogy that my, my co-host and brother-in-law likes to use is, you know, when, when you are talking about navigating somewhere, right? If, if you get one degree off and you're only going 10 feet, you're not going to be very far off your target, right? You're going to be within a, feet, a foot or two or less. If you are uh, navigating somewhere that's 100 miles away and you get one degree off of your, your calculations, you're going to end up several, you know, 100 miles off. I, I'm, I'm not good at math. He, Jesse's the math guy. But you're going to end up pretty far off course. And, and in this case, Wayne Grudem is not just one degree off right? He is, he is way, way off. He's way off. And the problem is, you know, if, if we were talking, and this is not to say that eschatology is not important because eschatology is very important. Um, it'd be an interesting show sometime to do to, to show all the ways that an errant eschatology influences your understanding of other things. But in the grand scheme of things, there's not a lot in the arena of eschatology itself that directly directly changes something else that you believe. But the doctrine of the Trinity is the chief article and mystery of the Christian faith. It, it, it is the center of our faith. It is what makes us different from other monotheistic religions. It is what distinguishes us from uh, the cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Oneness Pentecostals. This is the thing. If you get the Trinity wrong, you will get almost everything else wrong. Almost everything else. And so, so an error in this, an error in this area is absolutely devastating to a person's theology. And, you know, and, and, and I'll say this, everybody comes to the Christian faith at, at a particular point and with a particular understanding, it is very uncommon, probably almost unheard of for someone who, you know, they, they confess Christ, they're in a Bible believing church you know, like two days after they make their confession of faith, if you say like, hey, can you explain this whole Jesus is God thing? They're going to come at you with some crazy heresy, probably. Most likely they're going to have heard somewhere along the line that God is like an ice cube who can be ice, water, and mist. And, and that's just an old heresy called, you know, Sibelianism or, or modalism. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you have your Trinity wrong, that you're automatically condemned. Um, that's, that's not necessarily true. But if someone doesn't come alongside that person and, and correct them, they're actually doing them spiritual violence. They're actually allowing them to persist. It'd be like, you know, we all use the analogy that like, you don't learn that the stove is hot until you put your hand on it and burn it. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing to let a kid fall down and get some bruises or to do something that you know is going to cause a little bit of temporary pain in order to allow them to learn something. But if you let that kid run up and just stick his hand on the stove and just leave it there, then you're then that's abuse. And in a lot of ways, letting someone have an errant understanding of the Trinity is the same. It's the same thing. And, and I remember when I came to the faith, I, um, you know, I, I was a theology student. So I, I think I, I had a little bit of a better grip on, um, you know, general thinking about the Trinity when I first started to really think and talk about the Trinity, I remember uh, I wrote a paper, my senior Greek, uh, my senior theology paper. I did a, a uh, this was after a, a senior college uh, seminar on the Trinity. And, and I wrote a paper that basically argued that God was like the, the Megazord on Power Rangers, that you take the father, you take the son, you take the spirit and you kind of stick them together. And that, that new molecule of sorts is, is the is god that's what the word god means this was after four years or three years of bible school and several theology courses including courses on patristic i mean this was this was a, a far, pretty far in and i remember when i got to seminary and this stuff started to make sense to me i had a professor named don fairbairn who's just phenomenal um and he he taught this in a way that it made sense it, it, it utilized patristic sources but he also utilized the scripture to just really unpack this all of a sudden the scripture opened up to me, all of a sudden things in the scripture that seemed really confusing and seemed really, really esoteric and didn't make sense to me, all of a sudden they did. 
you know, all of a sudden I'm, I stopped asking, well, who's God talking to in Genesis 126? Who's, is it the angels? Is he just talking to himself? All of a sudden, this beautiful picture of the father and the son and the spirit, you know, collaborating together to, to bring forth creation. All of a sudden that's there because the Trinity is there. And the same is true with the hypostatic union, with the doctrine of the incarnation. All of a sudden, I'm no longer trying to understand how can it be that God doesn't know something. But now I'm understanding Christ took on our infirmities. He took on the common infirmities of human of humanity, including limited nature, but nevertheless still retained his deity. He still retained his full divinity. When you get those things wrong, the Bible doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense at all. And so to allow someone to stay in this dangerous place, to keep their hand on the stove of heresy, to kind of put it that way, and to rob them of the beauty of scripture by not, not helping them come to this fuller understanding of what, what the scripture has to teach, it really is not an act of Christian love. It's an act of hatred uh, that I think we really need to speak against. Yeah, and that's something I remember you talking about when you did your podcast on this subject. And um, that to me was a helpful takeaway that it's one thing to be wrong, but it's another thing to stay wrong. Right teach the wrong thing and to yep. defend the teaching of the wrong thing, which yeah. obviously Rudolf does in his systematic theology. And um, yeah, his section where he's quoting all these other sources and responding to, responding to disagreements. Um, I almost feel like the, the section heading could have been, you know, a response to my haters. Yeah. And how he approached it. Um, one thing I probably should have asked earlier because Grudem in his chapter on the Trinity gives all of his reasons as to why he thinks that subordination is a biblical idea and why more specifically eternal subordination is a biblical idea and we go over just kind of the, the basis of his argument and, and why because Grudem argues that you know to him it's just something that's clearly taught always been taught and we see in the bible that it just will eternally continue forever um at, at times perhaps and this is again something that i'd be curious your opinion on because you do have a better grasp on this subject than i do at times is grudem's issue partially that he's mixing the economic trinity and the ontological trinity and applying one to the other yeah yeah i'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I think this goes back to the what I said earlier that controversies and theological debate and discussion, they don't happen in a vacuum, right? They, they grow out of something. And so one of the things that happened in 2016 that I, I didn't realize it was happening at the time, but looking back at it, I can see it a lot more clearly, is everyone got really wrapped up in the idea of time. They, they got wrapped up in, in time and eternity and so the response was more or less because of the way that Grudem argues. He, he goes to the Bible. This is how he builds his argument. He goes to the Bible and he says, look at all these passages that talk about the father sending the son or the son obeying the father, um, about the, the son, you know, not my will, but your will. He takes all these passages and he just quotes them. He doesn't explain them. He just quotes them as though that settles the argument. You know, it's kind of funny when you're in a Facebook debate and someone just quotes a passage and then invariably someone comes in and is like, oh, I never knew that was in the Bible. I didn't realize that was there um, to kind of mock that concept of like just dropping a verse. But one of the issues and the, the predominant response at the time was to point out that Wayne Grudem was using passages that are clearly or, or mostly clearly talking about the son as it respects his human nature, the son in his office as the incarnate God-man. He's using passages about the, the God-man to explain what life must be like in the Trinity itself, which is not a legitimate thing to do. And so, so that was the primary response. And that's where you get things like this quote from Bavink, where he's saying, well, no, Bavink says that this mediatorship started in eternity. So because they were responding to Grudem's um, errant use of Christological scriptures, it's centered on the incarnation, but the issue is not really about eternity versus time. It's more about whether the, the theology we're talking about has to do with God 
ad intra, which means as God operates inside himself, th things that happen within the Trinity, uh, irrespective of the rest of everything, and then things that happen ad extra. So, so things that are oriented towards creation um, or outside of God. And, and what the issue is, is we need to speak more in terms of ad intra versus ad extra. And Grudem's argument is that the way the Trinity operates ad extra informs us about the Trinity ad intra. So how, how the Trinity acts towards creation tells us something about how the Trinity is apart from creation. Now, there's a kernel of truth in that, because most of what we have is ad extra. Most of what we see is ad extra. The sticky part of that is that the stuff that the Bible says that's explicitly about the Trinity ad intra doesn't seem to be saying this. And so Grudem has actually reversed this. So he'll say things like, um, because the son submits in time, then that tells us he must have submitted in eternity. But in reality, and this is the way classic sources have understood this, people like John Owen, who he quotes, or Jonathan Edwards, who he also quotes, they have gone the other direction. And so what they've said is that the son is the appropriate person. And this is a classic Puritan move too. People like John Owen or William Perkins, the, the Puritans that talk about this do this. Because the son is the second in order of priority, not in rank, not in authority, but the second in order of priority, and he falls between the father and the son, it is fitting that when the, when the economy of salvation takes place in time, it's fitting that he would be the one that stands in the gap. He's the one that's in the middle, not because uh, of some sort of eternal relationship of subordination in, in Grudem's sense, but simply because that's the logic of the Trinity. You can think of it this way. What the son does for us is when we are engrafted in the son, what is the son's becomes ours. So his relationship with the father uh, in eternity past, our relationship with the father in our adoption is mirrored uh, to that. But it doesn't mean that it's equivalent to that. It just, it's, it's mirrored to that. And so Grudem's argument, I think, inappropriately reverses that direction. Instead of looking at what we know about the Trinity uh, and then arguing forward to how that, that is an appropriate, uh, the incarnation is appropriate and explainable in light of that, he basically goes the other direction which he's not the first theologian to ever do that. And there's a certain, there's a certain kind of legitimacy to that. Um, Augustine ar argues in a similar way in, uh, in De Trinitatis uh, when he's trying to articulate the procession of the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's not entirely illegitimate to do that. But you have to be very, very careful when you do that. And I think that Grudem just doesn't, he just isn't, he doesn't have the chops to be careful, um, you know, to kind of, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but he doesn't have the theological acumen and the historical mastery of these sources to understand where he's treading on, on problematic ground. This is purely an opinion question. So then is part of it just that maybe Grudem would have been better served to stick to the areas that are strengths of his and instead of, because I can't, I cannot imagine the task of writing a systematic theology. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think about how I, mean, I went to a seminary and I feel like I've studied these things now for most of my adult life. And, um, and yeah, there's obviously, I think, I think anybody who reads the Bible and studies theology has certain topics right. they're stronger on. Um, I feel like the Trinity is one thing I feel like I've studied quite a bit. And I feel like I've, I've literally just still scratched the surface. Yeah. On it. And yeah. so I feel like it, it is certainly a challenge. And, you know, there's been certain people historically who have been, I think, just truly gifted. Um, you know, I don't know how people like John Calvin and Martin Luther did the things that they did before the internet and just their, their knowledge. Um, and again, I guess it's really just opinion, but, but, Maybe he should have just stuck within his lane and area of expertise. Yeah. But the Trinity isn't that for him. And that he got himself into a, a position that was in error. And I don't know if it's, uh, again, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm speculating too much, but for whatever reason, he's doubled down really in his new book, I would argue, tripled down yeah. on the same error. Um, 
and kind of painted himself into a corner. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, let me um, let me preface this by saying that I'm not I'm not trying to be pejorative, but I actually think this is more an issue with a particular flavor of biblicist interpretation, like a hermeneutical problem. Um, so you know the 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 classic reformed way of reading scripture is not let's let's pluck every bible verse out of its context and line it up and that's systematic theology um that is not how you interpret the bible right you you don't interpret the bible by just pulling verses out and the problem is that a lot of what wayne grudem does in reference to even his new testament studies which his his primary training and his primary academic um kind of assignment has been as a new testament scholar not not necessarily as a, a systematic theologian I'm not actually even sure how he became involved in writing a systematic theology to to be blunt. I don't I don't know where that even came from. Um which yeah, that's very interesting. And and I feel like um New Testament studies and systematic theology, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I mean, those are two totally different yeah. academic areas of study. That's like a person who's a neurosurgeon trying to become a cardiologist. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just you're not wrong. And, and so the classic reformed, and this is, I don't want to go on like a whole new Calvinist, young, restless reform kick, but one of the main differences between the, the so-called young, restless reform, there's actually a really sweet new podcast. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's called restless. It's, it's great. I've been listening. I've been binging the whole thing. And it's sort of a deep dive on this, this movement called young, restless reform. So I won't, I'll just point your listeners to that to check it out. But one of the primary differences is in this hermeneutical method. So to be frank, the reformed method of reading reading scripture is a lot harder than the young reformed restless or the new Calvinist method of reading scripture, right? The new Calvinist method is very similar to what Wayne Grudem is doing. You, you pluck verses and you line them up and that is how you interpret the Bible, right? You just, you just string verses together and that's, that's an interpretation of the Bible. The classic reformed way of reading scripture is to read it comprehensively and holistically. Um, I got myself in, into a little bit of trouble in seminary because we had to write faith statements for our kind of our capstone project for Systematic Theology 3. And part of that was uh, to utilize proof text, right? You're supposed to have a little proof text. So I did that, but I put a footnote at the end that basically said, uh, I think every doctrine needs to be derived from a comprehensive reading of the whole scripture, not individual verses. And, but that's not helpful in pointing someone to a source. And so I think that Wayne Grudem's issue is actually more of a hermeneutical issue than it is anything else. Um, I, I, like I said, I'm not sure where, I don't know the story behind him coming into writing a systematic theology. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, it's a very strange arrangement. That'd be interesting for somebody to deep dive and figure out. But because of the way he reads scripture, because he sees scripture predominantly as a collection of propositional statements. Um, and I'm not saying this, this is one of the things that like the emerging church went sideways on. The scripture is, does have, and is propositional statements. That's not to say it's not, but because he tends to read scripture as a, a list of propositional statements rather than as a cohesive narrative that that has all sorts of different genres. And of course he would acknowledge these things verbally, but that's not the way he reads it. He tends to come up with some of these kind of squirrely things. A similar way thing he does is when he's talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, I just wrote a, a position paper for um, some, some study I'm doing. And when I got to this section, I was able to pull from all over the scripture to show why I believe that the, the spirit, the gifts of the spirit has ceased. I, I pulled stuff out of Daniel about prophecy being sealed when the Messiah comes. I pulled stuff out of Paul. I mean, I pulled stuff from all over the place because I was trying to draw from a comprehensive thing. Well, Wayne Grudem goes to first Corinthians and says, I would that all of you would prophesy. And he goes, well, there you go. The Bible says he wishes everyone would prophesy. Well, that's not the only thing that the Bible says. And so he, he draws his theology from scripture explicitly by just lining up texts without really doing the hard work of understanding and interpreting those texts, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that's where he gets himself into hot water. And, and this is where I, I don't want to sound pejorative. There's no way to fix that except to stop interpreting the Bible that way. Like there's no way to fix it except to get a better hermeneutic. 
and and that's just really the way the way that it is um you know it's funny during the 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 heat of the trinity debate al moeller wrote a little bit of a um a little bit of a rejoinder to it um and he says in it um i just lost it but he says it would be heresy if uh, someone affirmed that there was multiple wills. Well, if I was to read this article in kind of the Wayne Grudem method of historical citation, I could just say, well, see, Al Mohler agrees with me that that this is a heretical movement. But because I have to understand the rest of it within the context of Al Mohler's theology, within the context of this article, within the context of things he said on the briefing and things that he said in other public addresses, I have to comprehensively look at everything he said. I can't just take that one quote. And that's the difference in overall methodology between myself and Grudem. And it's a difference in hermeneutic methodology between how the classic reformed and Lutheran tradition for that matter, it's not even explicitly reformed, but the, the classic understanding of how the scripture is to be read versus this sort of much newer understanding of, of how the scripture is to be read propositionally, uh, biblicist, I use that, that term biblicist. Uh, that's the problem. And what if what's interesting, and then, you know, I know this is probably like the longest episode you're ever going to have in your life, because I just won't stop talking. But um, what's interesting is that when you look at the way that the heretics made their arguments in the these controversies in the fourth and fifth century, this is how they made the arguments. They took specific verses uh, that seemed to be saying what they wanted to say, and they just dropped them out there like that settles it right? Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Of course, that means he's a creature. How can he be the firstborn of all creation? Well, just a few verses earlier, it says that he's the fullness of deity and that it's the fullness of deity that body, you know, dwells bodily. Um, you know, Basil is a, Basil is one of the, the key figures in this era, Basil the Great. Uh, and he, he in his, uh, one of his works on the Holy Spirit, he's responding to heretics that are making arguments that sound exactly like Grudem parsing out the difference and saying, well, the Bible never says that creation is through the father or that the spirit is with the father. It never says that. Well, Basil shows not only is that not true, a lot of the things that Wayne Grudem says in, in his book just aren't accurate. But even if it were, he shows that that's not, a, that's not an appropriate way to read the Bible. So I th to answer your question, it, it's just a hermeneutic problem. It's, it's a problem with the way he interprets everything, not even just the Bible, but especially the Bible. It's almost like a, it, it, it's interesting that that has become for many the, the hermeneutic of the day, because that just seems like basically the Google way to, right. to facts of just Googling something that fits what you're trying to say and just kind of plugging that in. And um, I'm curious, we, we touched on this earlier, you know, just of how wide ranging this is um, the dangers are of an incorrect view of the Trinity impacting our theology as I throw my dog's ball. Um, <laughs> what are some of the main dangers that jump out to you um, that specifically come from this way of thinking? Yeah. When we talk about how it's, how it is heretical. Um, why is it such a big deal? Yeah, well, obviously, you know, the, the primary concern is what we talked about earlier with the fact that this is a salvation issue. But in terms of like everyday on the ground realities, um, one of the things that is sort of frustrating and paradoxical is that the arguments that they're making in terms of how this then gets applied to, to male-female relations, um, the arguments that they're making actually prove the criticism that the uh, the egalitarians were making of them in the 80s, right? And so where it becomes most destructive, I don't want your listeners to hear me wrong. There is something in the Bible called patriarchy and properly understood, that is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I'm a complementarian, so I fully affirm that there are differences, technically speaking, we would call them accidental differences, but there are differences between men and women. And those differences mean something. And they have implications, not just for the church and, and the home, but they have, they have implications for all of society. Um, 
so that that's my affirmation. So I don't want anyone, I don't want, you know, the Geneva Commons people to be coming after me saying I'm an, I'm a new leader in the feminist army or something like that. But um, that was like a total inside baseball joke for most people. Um, but this has been abused in significant ways. So, so for example, I, I didn't actually mean to do this, but Michael Spangler, who is one of the, the main um, ringleaders in some of the controversy, uh, he was on a podcast called uh, the, the True Presbyterian or something like that. And in that podcast, he explicitly says that women have an inferior nature to men. And because of their inferior nature, they are incompetent to do certain things. Um, that also follows out into things like Doug Wilson, who has said in the past um, that uh, women are there to be conquered and that that's fundamental to the nature of things. That, that a, a man's act in procreation is to conquer the woman. Uh, it's, he, he likens it to military conquest. Um, there are rings of people that call themselves biblical patriarchists or biblical, they, they're from biblical patri patriarchy, which is not biblical. Um, it, it's not the same thing as what the Bible teaches, who will talk about uh, physically disciplining their wives if they break a dish or if they burn the meal. Um, there are, are women who hold this view that will talk about, there was an article that came out about how um, she wasn't washing the dishes wrong and her husband called her on it and she was just so distraught because her attitude was that she she was a terrible wife because she was upset that her husband called her on washing the dishes wrong. Um, and, and it wasn't something like she wasn't getting the dirt off. It was like the order that she did it in or like some auxiliary thing that doesn't really matter. Um, there are some people who will say, the husband is the priest of the house. And so uh, matters of church discipline uh, can't be applied to women who are married, uh, that, that that has to go through the husband. Um, there are churches out there, believe it or not, where rather than each person coming up to receive uh, the Lord's Supper as an individual, uh, the, the father of the family or the head of the household will go up and get the elements and then bring them back and serve them to their families. So all of, all of these things flow out of an incorrect understanding of what the Bible teaches about gender. Uh, and they all flow out of an, un, an unbiblical understanding of the fundamental ontological difference of male and female. Um, when I say accidental, you and I have accidental differences, right? You have hair, I'm a baldy, right? And not just because I shave it, like I've been going bald since I was about 27. So, so that's, an, uh, that's an accidental difference. That difference in hair doesn't have implications, generally speaking, for society, right? Um, but the, uh, the accidental differences between male and female, on average, do have implications for society. But that's very different than saying all men are superior than to all women. This is the way I liken it, right? We, we, we've, we joked a little bit about having dogs and, and our, we both have terriers and terriers are not subordinate to anyone or anything unless they wanna be. But on the grand scheme of things, my dog is subordinate to me by nature, right? All dogs, whether they're my dog or your dog are subordinate to me by nature. If my dog uh, attacks my wife and it comes down to it, I would, I would kill the dog like that. That I love my dog. I would never want to hurt my dog. But if it, if it came between my dog and my wife, I would kill the dog. If it came between my dog and any person, any human being out there, even someone I don't like very much, I would kill the dog if that was going to save the life of a person. Because my dog is naturally subordinate to me. It's naturally lower than me. In, in complementarianism, true biblical complementarianism, Women are not subordinate to men in that way. They're not. My wife uh, in the biblical teaching becomes subordinate to me voluntarily when she when we marry. So, so it is a voluntary, she voluntarily enters. It's like a covenant subordination, not a natural one. And so where, where this has problems in, um, in the practical outflow is that it treats the relationship between the father and the son more like the relationship between my dog and me than it does in some sort of covenant voluntary condescension of the son, even though that's how they, they phrase it. And that understanding of subordination now flows out and has been applied to male, male, female relationships in a way that has just done damage, done huge amounts of damage in the church. Um, one of the, I, I didn't get into it, but he, he, 
he mentions a book by Amy Bird called uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I I am not a big fan of the book. I don't think it was well-written. I don't think it was well-argued. I think there are a number of really dangerous uh, conclusions that she comes to. But she's an image bearer. She has been treated terribly. And um, and, and her, I don't want to say falling away from the faith. That's That's way too dramatic. But her falling away from a biblical understanding of biblical complementarianism and falling towards something that no longer resembles what the Bible teaches uh, in any real sense of, of what it means for a man to be the head of his household or for, for the leadership in the church to be male or for the implications in society. That is not, in my opinion, not a consequence of her reading the Bible and coming to that conclusion. That is a consequence of responding and reacting to an improper anthropology that's been forwarded now by people like Wayne Grudem, by people like Michael Spangler, like Doug Wilson. Um, so there really are real practical practical outcomes. Not everyone who believes this is abusing their wife. Not everyone is, right, right it's not a necessary outcome. It is a logical outcome. It, the, the theology flows into it. But this theology um, very much leads to that if left unchucked. And it certainly has been used in, in egregious ways to, to oppress. I mean, you know, I, I mentioned like these weird churches where the father comes to the, comes to the table and brings communion back. Well, Paul's whole point in Galatians when he says there is no male and female is that when it comes to ecclesiology, when it comes to our relationship to God and our interactions in the church, we're all the same. Right. That's not to say that there aren't men and there aren't women, but in reference to our salvation, in reference to our relationship with God, there is only one mediator between a person and, and God, and that's Jesus Christ. It's not a husband, it's not a father, it's not any of those things. It's Jesus Christ. So so this has this has tendrils that kind of reach out into all sorts of areas in, in theology and practice. Yeah, and that's really just kind of a, a sad commentary of the whole situation is that in trying to explain this complementarian theology in the way in which Grudem does it, he developed an incorrect Trinitarian theology. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and one other thing, a sure sign that somebody at the very least has their priority wrong, but probably also gets their theology wrong, is when uh, an auxiliary issue or, or a an issue of lower importance. I don't want to say auxiliary because anthropology is very important, but when an, a, a, an issue of lower importance or centrality becomes the reason you're developing a theology of a higher priority, right? In this case, when your, um, your anthropology is, is causing you to make changes in your Trinitarian theology, um, that is almost a sure sign that somebody's theology is out of whack. It's kind of like um, the dispensationalists who who go back and say, well, not all the Bible is for, for Christians. Not not everything in scripture is for us. Like the Sermon on the Mount, that was for Jewish people, but but the you know the the rest of the New Testament, that's for us. Like when you're using your fringe eschatology to then radically change what you think about the Bible and the, the nature of the Bible, that's a problem. And that's exactly what what has happened. They may not have intended it. I mean, I'll take them at their word when they say this wasn't the intention, but the the clear actuality is that this is what happened is they've they've now taken this central doctrine and they use it as a prop to support a relatively relative to that a relatively unimportant doctrine um, which is really really just sad i feel like we could talk about this all day i mean I feel like <laughs> really just scratched the surface on this yeah. whole question. um one thing i would be curious to ask since you know, I've really, over the last several months, because I mean, I used to be a fan of Grudem. I, I wouldn't say he was ever my favorite theologian, but I mean, I, I had his book and right. really liked it. And um, and yeah, I, I don't know what the sales numbers are of other contemporary systematic theologies. I would think they're they're all, I would think just have to be dwarfed. Yeah. Oh yeah, but, for sure. So I'd be curious, what's is there a systematic theology that you would recommend that's accessible for somebody who's kind of a beginner to the subject? Because I feel like some of those just get so quickly, get so dense and complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple that I would, I would suggest. Um, Mike Horton, who, who I mentioned earlier, um, 
some people are a little bit put off by him because of how explicitly reformed he is, but he actually has uh, like a series of theology books that are targeted to different levels. So he has a book called core Christianity, which is really not even just for people new to thinking about theology, but people who are new to the Christian faith, but it is a systematic treatment of all of the doctrines of, of Christian theology. Um, that is a little bit less overtly reformed. So people who are a little bit turned off by that or aren't, aren't ready for that. Um, it's a good choice. He has a next step up, which is probably good for someone who's at like a freshman sophomore uh, level in college um, called Pilgrim Theology. And then he has a single volume systematic theology that is called the Christian faith, uh, which is really designed for like a first or second year seminary student. That was the, the textbook that I used in seminary. Um, all of those are good. I, I think my, my perspective on theology is actually that there's value in the wrestling. There's value in the struggle of trying to get your head around it. So kind of weird and paradoxically, I actually suggest that the first place someone goes uh, if they are reformed friendly or reformed leaning is just go straight to the institutes. Um, Calvin was writing that uh, to be an accessible uh, guide for Christians. He was writing it originally to be something people could kind of carry around in their pocket as a commentary on the Apostles' Creed. So I say go straight to the institutes, but I know that the size of that can be a little bit intimidating. Another good option that is um, not not newly available in English, but was recently republished. It's called The Wonderful Works of God, which is by Herman Bovink, which is uh, a very good treatment of, of theology. Um, again, is a very explicitly reformed uh, leaning. And then there is a book um, called Everyone's a Theologian, which was written by the late R.C. Sproul. There are some issues. Um, I think that Dr. Sproul has, has some confusing ways of talking, particularly about uh, the incarnation that are not super helpful. So I think someone going into that should be aware that, that they probably want to supplement that with something from a different source. But that's a very approachable, very easy to understand, very winsome um, theology that, you know, and, and also just from my own perspective, it represents R.C. Sproul, Sproul at his absolute best. He was, he was in his element. He was doing what he loved. He was, he was popularizing and bringing theology kind of to the masses. So that's a good, a good place to go as well. Um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian at heart, even though I'm a, a member at a Baptist church. Um, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism um, is just a, a phenomenal collection of easy to understand, simple, distilled theology um, that it's in a question and answer format, but there's also an internal logic to it. So it helps you understand one of the difficulties with systematic theology is, is you have to a good systematic theology is unfolding an argument. It's unfolding. It's almost telling a story of, of what theology is. And so each point builds on the last. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in my opinion, is probably the best example of a good teaching tool that does that. So those would be my go-tos for someone who's new to, new to systematic theology or is, is new to theology as a thing uh, to kind of go to those sources and just work through it. But I really do believe like the Institutes is tough uh, but it, it, it's, it's worth the fight. It's worth the struggle. Um, and you will come out of that a lot better off than if you spend a lot of time, Let, let's put it this way. It will probably take you about as much time to read Pilgrim theology as it will for you to read, uh, Calvin's institutes. But when you come out and I love Pilgrim theology, I've read it several times. When you come out the other end of it, you will understand the Christian faith way better if you've read and digested uh, the Institutes than you would if you read Pilgrim Theology. Last, I think this is my last question that I have. Again, I feel like I could ask you questions for... Well, <laughs> if, you have, if you have like eight more hours... Um, yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, does there need to be some sort of collective response within... Protestantism to this teaching, which has become yeah. again influential. Which, again, even if people don't read Grudem's systematic theology book, their pastor might, or they might read other books that are written by people who are, you know, readers of Grudem. That I mean, this has its way of seeping into the Christian consciousness and culture. Yeah. Um, is there any? sort of major response that's, and I don't even know how that would happen in the modern world. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I lament on one level, uh, and I say this kind of tongue in cheek. Sometimes I wish that Protestantism had a pope, <laughs> because it would be nice if someone could just say, "No, you're wrong, and you're not allowed to do this anymore." Um, but that that's that's not biblical, right? That's not the way that it was designed. Um, I, I, you know, putting on my Presbyterian hat, one of the problems with this is that. Wayne Grudem in many ways, uh, and, and Bruce Ware, you know, they, they operate kind of outside of outside of any sort of accountability. Um, you know, they have some institutional commitments to the SBC and to the various seminaries they teach at. Um, but there are other, and I, I maybe this is a cynical take, there are other competing interests uh, in those organizations uh, that, that mitigate against a strong response. Um, you know, and, and I, I won't, if, if Al Mohler came out and said, Wayne Grudem is an unorthodox teacher who should not be teaching the things he does, um, that would entail a whole host of institutional commitments that would come alongside that. Um, so, so there's, there's not liberty in the institutions that he is accountable to, to really respond to this. Um, if someone, here's a good example, Scott Oliphant, who is a professor at Westminster uh, Seminary in Philadelphia, he held a very errant teaching for a very long time. And the church, uh, the Presbyterian Church, the OPC in this case, they held a trial and said, no, you can't do this anymore. And, and there was a technicality that he wasn't convicted on, but they were able to apply ecclesiastical pressure to him uh, and say, you can't do this anymore. And just a little while ago, maybe half a year ago, he's since recanted of his view. And so I think, you know, to kind of answer your question, I wish there was some way that there could be a universal uh, ecclesiastical response to this uh, with not just uh, powers of persuasion, but the actual teaching authority of the church. I wish that that could be there. Um, but because of the positions and the ecclesiology that Wayne Crudum holds, and because of the way Presbyterians don't exercise and can't exercise authority over Baptists who aren't part of their communion. Um, there really isn't a possibility of that. And so what we're left with is venues like this. Uh, we're left with other publications. Um, there are some institutional things that could be done. Um, you know, the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, if there could be enough agreement. And this has happened in the past with other other issues. The ETS could say you're no longer going to be able to be allowed to be a member. You're not going to have a platform to publish with us. Um, the publishers, Crossway, uh, you know, um, uh, Zondervan, they, they could come forward and say, we're not going to publish this because it's not orthodox. But they obviously have chosen not to do that. So I wish there could be. I don't think there can be. And so what we're left with are, are people who love the Lord and want to study the scripture, who uh, can do our very best to try to persuade people that this is not the way, uh, this, is not, this is not the teaching of the church, this is not the teaching of the scripture. So I, I think that's what I want people to sort of walk away with, is may, maybe I need to be less uh, direct about this, but I'm a pretty direct person. If you are recommending Wayne Grudem's theology to anyone, just stop it. Just stop it. You're not doing anyone any good. The only way this goes away is if we stop We stop spending money on it. We stop teaching it. We stop using it. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not into boycotts. I'm not into cancel culture, right? But if we're talking about quality theological resources, Wayne Grudem and pretty much everything he's written, it's not limited to just systematic theology, but, but this has tendrils that go everywhere else. He's not a sound theological teacher. So we should stop acting and treating him like he is, which involves buying his books, right? So I wish we could do something more formal and I wish there was more ecclesiastical ways to do it. Um, the only, I mean, I guess like we could try to get, get to his, his pastor and convince his pastor that this isn't orthodox. And, uh, but I suspect that that's probably not, um, not likely to happen. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I think those are great thoughts, and, and yeah, unfortunately, there is really not a whole lot right. that can be done, and um, but again, I definitely appreciate your, your analysis, and, and truly, I feel like we really just scratched the surface. There's yeah. so much more uh, on the subject and the theology of it, um, but I really, really appreciate your time and just all of your insights and information on this subject. And again, I just, I can't say, and that's how important I think it is. Um, yeah. I think we, we agree. I mean, the Trinity, 
and it's everything to understanding the gospel and uh, the doctrine of God and even the relationship. I mean, the, our doctrine of God is impacted by our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know you've talked right. about that on the podcast before with uh, even things like divine simplicity are really violated by Grudem's conclusions on the Trinity and yeah. just natures within the Godhead um, that, you know, logically you have two wills if one is subordinate eternally to the other. Right. So again, I, I really, really appreciate your time and, and your thoughts on this. And um, I hope that more and more people, and again, obviously this, this discussion has been going on for several years now, but um, I hope people will just continue to pay attention and to, to really have a concern for this. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. I couldn't agree more. I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to, to explain this and um, hopefully your listeners can, can sort of whet their appetite and dig in a little bit more. Um, I just think it's so important. And, and this is the faith. This, this is the faith once delivered to the saints, right? It's not, uh, it's not a, an auxiliary issue. Um, this is, this is everything you said, it, you said it well. Well, thank you very much. And uh, a link to the episode of your podcast where you guys talked about this, because again, that to me was just so informative and helpful in, in my own understanding of, of this whole discussion. And there's so much more that you say in there that I wish we had time for today. But once again, Tony, sincerely, I, I appreciate it, all the work that you've done on this very important topic. And I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me.